Hello and welcome to another episode on the Branches of Learning podcast. At the moment, obviously, none of our programmes are able to run, so we're looking to try and support our players and parents as much as possible and anyone else that's interested in listening to some of the conversations that we've had around coaching, education, teaching and learning. So today's guest is Andrew McBride. Andrew is the Deputy Principal at Westlake Boys High School, which is a large, successful state school in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, Prior to moving to New Zealand, uh, Andrew taught in the UK and completed his sports science degree at Durham University and uh, went on to do a master's degree in educational leadership at Northumbria University. Uh, Andrew, who's a close friend of Mark Lee, has agreed to have a conversation and a chat with us about his current areas of interest, which are character education, effective mentoring, positive psychology, and relational learning. Andrew is also currently undertaking research projects for the International Boys School Coalition and the Association of Boys Schools New Zealand. So a really fascinating opportunity uh, for for me to to talk to him and have this conversation, and I think it's something that listeners will, will find really useful. Uh, I'll put Andrew's contact details at the end. Um, so for now, enjoy Andrew McBride. Okay, so Andrew McBride, welcome to the Branches of Learning podcast. Great to be here, Jack. Thank you. No, thanks for having us. I have to thank, obviously, uh, Mark for putting putting me on to, to you and having the conversation that we had uh, I think on Tuesday it would have been now. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, Mark's um, Mark's been a really good friend of mine, a mentor for probably twenty years or more now. So, any chance you know when he puts me in touch with people to help them out, I'm more than willing to do it. And, and yeah, so it's great to uh, reconnect with um, with PFT and with Mark and with you guys in Western Australia. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I think um, I selfishly said I'm really looking forward to this. We spoke a little bit on the phone on Tuesday about uh, your role and what you might bring to this this podcast and really excited. I think people are going to really enjoy listening to um, sort of the, the the journey that you've been on. Some of the some of the research that you've done is, is so, um, so good for players and parents and teachers that are listening because, as they'll find out, we can just relate it to not just our sport, but our industry as well um, yeah hopefully really um, yeah hopefully let's see how we go <laughs> yeah so Andy what would you normally be doing on a Thursday where, where would you normally um, be? I'd normally be in my school um, which is Westlake Boys High School it's a, it's a big uh, successful boys school in Auckland uh, the North Shore of Auckland in New Zealand um, so that's where I would be I'd either be teaching or I would be um, working with some students um, mostly in a pastoral care capacity, so anything from mental health to well-being um, to looking at their future, um, things of that nature. So yeah, that's normally what what I would be doing. Um, obviously, a bit different at the moment, um, yeah. Because like you guys were, were kind of uh, locked down or were self-isolating or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that's what I'd normally be doing, and that's what I love doing: uh, working with young people and trying to ignite a bit of a fire in them or trying to get them to realize the potential. Um, and again, you know, I know it's a phrase PFT use, you know, be the best they can be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the challenges that you've had with your school from a, a teaching perspective or some of the, the biggest challenges that the, the boys have had in not being at school, just if people can go, yeah, we're, we're in that space too. 
Yeah, I mean, we're taking we're, we're fortunate that we've been able to take a lot of things online, which has been great. Um, and yeah, just keeping in touch with boys as best we can, um, work with our staff as best we can, and you know, there's no blueprints for any of this. We're sort of, you know, we're, it's without precedent, so we are um, lucky and we're fortunate that we were doing a lot of online learning anyway, um, and trying to exactly. to make that as seamless as possible. Um, but yeah, keeping in touch as best we can. I think it's a really important time to stay connected um you know when you can't meet people face to face um it's it's too easy to lose that connection and um that's really important for teenagers to, to stay connected uh to feel like they belong to something uh which put this is connection and belonging is probably something we'll talk about a little bit more later but to feel that they're a part of something is very very important um, we know that from some of the studies around the teenage brain and the prefrontal cortex development, which we'll touch upon later. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's more about um, well-being at the moment and and getting boys active and learning, um, and really putting a lot of time and value into that, I suppose. Yeah, no, and, and how much of that contact um, or the importance of that contact is both formal versus informal? Because you know, being around the school. A lot of it can be structured in classrooms, and there's that concept. But there's also yep. the how you're going down the corridor, how you're doing in the playground on the oval. Yeah, yeah. Which yep. one of those two balances out that they'll miss the most? Do you think at this point? Yeah, I think obviously the formal is a lot easier to do online. So we've got you know classes set up to teach virtually and remotely. Um, but yeah, I certainly miss being able to sort of walk through, you know, the quad or the playground and, you know, ask a couple of lads how things are going or, yeah. you know, who did they play at the weekend and all that sort of stuff. Um, how's their sport going? How's their music going? Um, but hopefully, um, you know, the boys have got some informal networks, um, whether it be through social media or through groups that they're in that, you know, we can sort of push that little bit more with regard to informal connection. But, um yeah, it's, it's a tough time, It's but we have to look for the silver linings, and I think there are a lot of them. Um, it's you just got to look for them a little bit harder, but to be able to spend more time with your family and be able to really um, invest in some online learning and some professional development, they're all really important things, and they'll stand people in good stead for a long, long time, you know, well after this is over. Um, so we're, we and I am I'm really sort of, hopeful for how this the future sort of reignites after this and where the boys can take things so it's a, it's as much as it's a worrying time for a lot of people it's also if you spin it on its head there's going to be a lot of learning come out of this and and it could be quite exciting you know the future that comes from education and sport and music and drama and culture um if we take the lessons from it and we do our sort of reflection and all that sort of thing so it's not all um from my perspective, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, no. Obviously, for some people who are, you know, you know, in quite dire medical situations, and I'm no expert on that, um, you know, it's hard to see the wood for the trees at the moment. But if you can take a step back and observe what's going on, but not necessarily absorb it from an emotional perspective and, and keep that balance, then yeah, I think people will, will get together and we'll get through this okay. Let's hope so. So judging by your accent, 
I don't think you went to school in New Zealand. I might be wrong. Andy. Didn't. No, I, I certainly didn't. didn't. That's not a New Zealand accent that I can pick up. So yeah. you didn't start there. I'd like to just explore the start of your journey um, so that yep. people can connect the dots um, of where you've been and, and your journey and, and try and link that to theirs um, or possibly even link it to what they think their future might look like if they're not at the point of their journey or their career of, of where you are. Just listening to where you started um, yep. would be really helpful. So where do you think yep. this journey, and I've put that in inverted commas, whatever that journey is for you, where do you yep. think it started? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, yeah, you're right, it's not a traditional Kiwi accent, far from it. Um, I'm, I live in a place, so I'm from a place um, called County Durham in the northeast of England. Concert County Durham is my town, um, and that really is my connection to, to PF, uh, PFT and to Mark, really. We both, Mark's a little bit older than me, but we went to the same school. Um, Mark's mum was my English teacher for GCSE English when I was 16, 15, 16. Um, so we grew up in the same area, we know the same people, we um, visited the same places and played for the same teams and things like that. So in terms of of journey, um, yeah, it very much started there, probably, you know, school age, you know, kicking a ball around and, and playing as much as you can with your mates and things like that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really um, how my formative years were, you know, going to school, Good family, good friends, um, playing a sport I loved as much as I could, um, sticking in with my academics as best I could. Um, so that's kind of where things started, as it does for, for most sort of teenagers, I think. But I have a couple of probably uh, seminal moments um, which really sort of set me on a way that it gave me a lot of direction in what I wanted to do. One directly involved Mark and a, and a partner of his at the time called John Herdman, who they were partners in a football coaching uh, capacity. They ran something called the Brazilian Soccer School, which was really fresh, really innovative, um, in in quite a tough part of town, you know, in a community hall um, where hundreds of kids were just wanting to play football, and they made it exciting, and they it was brand new, and there was music on, and the way they spoke to players, and the way they did their sessions that really got me thinking that coaching and or teaching were things that I very much wanted to do um, and I'm very thankful for that I'm very thankful for having them as as mentors um, I'm very thankful for some of the experiences they gave me and some of the things I learned um, from being in a sports environment or football specific environment that I'd never ever been in before I've been at professional clubs in academies um yeah. i'd you know very formal coaching um and it's only when i look back now i realize that the way they were doing it was of a massive impact and a massive help on me uh, my development compared to some of those more formal coaching structures that, and these were you know premier league academies at the time um yeah. but they didn't speak to me like mark and john did they didn't treat me like Mark and John did. Um, they didn't really push the value of fun um, as much as they did. So I'm thankful now that I can look up back on that, you know, 20, 25 years later, and and really reflect on the impact that it had. And and directly now, the way I try and teach, and the way I try and coach, and the way I try and deliver um, elements of of that formative 
um, upbringing, I suppose, were, were very much from those two guys. So that's really been really important to me, I think. Now, what would what a typical session from Mark look like back in that time? And what, oh, what I mean, it was, that you, you took from that <laughs> it was brilliant. He was brilliant, Mark. I mean, you, you tell him now, and you and you sort of ask him what they were doing, and they reckon they were making it up as they went along, and it was chaos. But to us, no, young lads that were just enough. looking at it, um, they're underplaying that, they're underselling it because it was. You never were without a ball at your feet. You never weren't enjoying what you were doing. It was always something new, things that they'd seen on TV. You know, it must have been about the time of must have been about '98 World Cup ish time I would imagine if I'm you know sort of 97 to 99 ish yeah um, and you know Ronaldo was a big star and they'd go and watch him play and they'd bring back some tricks and they'd show you and Mark could, could do all that he's, he's probably mm-hmm. one of the best players I've seen at the time and that I knew personally um, and it was just they were you know we were juggling with tennis balls and we were playing in teams and we were playing 3v3s and I'd never really had that before I'd had an upbringing of going to an academy with good players and undoubtedly with good coaches, but we wouldn't stray very far from playing four four two, and everyone had a position to play and everyone had a, a thing to do, you know, almost a tick list of things. Those guys didn't have that. They just really wanted everyone to enjoy what they were doing, to learn, to grow. Um, so a typical session would just be constant touches on the ball, constantly interacting with you um the music was on there was um you know every warm-up was different um it was just fantastic i I look back on it now and i just think we were so lucky to have that as kids i don't think you'll find anyone who and i'm talking about hundreds of people in my area who went through that academy if you want to call it that who didn't enjoy it um and like I say, it was fresh, it was unique, it was innovative, and we were so lucky to have those guys at a time before things really took off for them. So John now is the head coach of the Canada men's national team, and obviously Mark's doing unbelievable work in Western Australia with his um, academies, etc. But we were lucky to have them in their local area, you know, turning up, paying like a pound, I don't know what that is, two bucks, um, yeah. and just playing for hours and hours on end it was brilliant it was it was still to this day and i've had some good football experiences still to this day one of the best things i've ever done and uh, i look back with great fondness so that was yeah really important to my journey if you want to call it that or the start of it yeah setting me up for you know what i do now and things It it was really special yeah i mean i can i can definitely relate to half of what you just said in terms of the stock standard academy experience yeah of 442, loads of uh, structured patterns of play, um, yeah. loads of uh, shadow play. I was at yeah. Derby, Derby County from under eights to under elevens yeah. and then Nottingham Forest, so to under 16, 17s. And yeah. the academy experience could have done with a, a lot of that unstructured, yeah. fun learning. Um, yeah. Certainly could have done with some more engagement from its coaches. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah. that was the model, and it looks like they're now bringing that back in. Um, yep. It sounds a, a massive thing, and if that was indoors, it sounds like that was that. Yep. Sounds like yeah, it was indoors. Samba yep. sort of feel to it. Um, yep. So yeah. w- would you say that uh, your education guided you into sport through wanting to have, be part of teams, or would you say that 
sport guided you into education and that it was sport was the primary um, focus and that you knew you needed an education or was it education was the primary focus but you also enjoyed sport on the side? Yeah, I think hard to sort of um, split them apart really. I was I was lucky to have, you know, I still have, you know, two great parents who know that a bit of balance in your life is better than anything. I was never one to have all my eggs in one basket, I don't think, um, and rightly so. Um, and and I'm not saying for a minute I'm an expert in anything or I've gone on to have, you know, stellar uber success in anything. But I think in terms of the balance, it was important that we, you know, we got that right. And, you know, same as the balance of, you know, when we're talking, I'm not bagging those academies back then for the for what they did. They gave me a lot of grounding as well and a lot of learning. It was just different what I had with different coaches. Um, but certainly, yeah, I was I was very fortunate to have other interests. Um, yeah. I wasn't someone who I still don't think, and part of the reason, I mean, the main part of the reason why I didn't ever you know, progress from being a academy graduate to a full-time professional would be probably, if I'm honest, I probably didn't want it enough um, in terms of being obsessed by the game and, and you know, every waking moment being consumed by football. But I think in some ways that's been a good thing for me because it has gave me some other options. So I think I, I never sort of lent on one more than the other, but I did like going to school. I was, you know, and I do like... I do like learning. I've never really stopped um, trying as best I can to educate myself. Um, and I think without that grounding, I would have been in a position where a lot of my peers found themselves in that they were, it was full-time football till it wasn't. And then when it wasn't, there wasn't much of a plan B. So when, when I talk to aspiring players now and work with them, I think, Sometimes plan B needs to be their football and plan A should be their academics. Um, but if you can do both at the same time, awesome. You know, I look at what the, we've got boys at the moment who are pursuing U.S. college scholarships. Um, just fantastic opportunities to to do both. And, and I would be very wary of anyone who's got their heart set on any one thing from the age of 8 to 16, 17, 18, I think you've just got to tread so carefully um, around that because you are talking about the 1% of the 1% making a living out of football that they can live off from sort of finishing football probably at 30, 35 to, to whenever, you know, they've got to go right through retirement and all that sort of stuff. So you've got to be really careful. Yes, dreams are really important and goals and, Habits of mind are exceptionally important, but also just knowing that, you know, you've got to have that something to fall back on. And whatever that is, it doesn't really matter um, as long as it's something you're passionate about and interested in. I think that's the key message that I would give to any aspiring young athlete or footballer. Um, it's a, it is a dream and what a life it must be, but it is unfortunately not one that we can all pursue. And I'm certainly... Um, fall into that category that I would have loved to it, but I probably didn't want it bad enough, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a main reason why, you know, I look at some of my friends who did become professional footballers and they were obsessed by it, and that's great, and it's worked out really well for them. But you can't force that onto everyone, I suppose. And I think, yeah, you're right. I think the passion sometimes for a, a sport um, can be the guidance. So mm. for those that 
from you know from my perspective, uh, wanting to be or go as high as possible in football was the yeah. guidance or the motivation for my education. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. And sometimes it's the, it, that's the one that p- pushes the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned there about you know parents giving you lots of balance and perspective. Yeah. Were there anyone else outside of of your home that you can look back on either you know the person that you can remember or or the role that that person had? Yeah, absolutely. Was a really positive influence in guiding you um, because I know that's something that we're going to talk about later on in, in yeah. mentoring and guidance. Yeah. Um, yeah. So who were your biggest influences outside of the family home? Yeah, I've been great. I had some great teachers, which is always good. You know, if you can be treat, sorry, if you can be sort of treated as a person in a classroom, not just a, an exam statistic or a mark to be had. And I certainly had that. I had people guiding me. Um, but yeah, like I've, I've alluded to, you know, Mark, I suppose, took me under his wing a little bit. Um, he really looked out for me. He gave me the benefit of his experience. Um, he was probably one of the first people I ever knew that left our area to go and pursue football. I think he, I could be wrong on this. You might need to fact check it, but I think he went <laughs> to Chelsea for a little bit of a time. Um, and then he was at a club called Scarborough for a time. And that was really unique to me that those opportunities existed. Um, and then John, who I alluded to before, he's been a major real mentor for me, not just football wise, but he's a major influence on me being in New Zealand, Right now, he was in New Zealand as the the head coach of the women's team when I came over, um, and part of coming over was to work alongside him in a small capacity. Um, so yeah, those those two plus my family and my parents and um, you know my wider friends. I think it's that, that's really important as well. You know, it's to to get a good group of mates around you is is exceptionally important because your adolescence is. Um, an exceptionally complex time for the for the for the teenage brain. Um, there's a lot going on hormonally, um, and to have good people around you um, at that time is is absolutely vital. You need a little bit of space to go and explore and try things yourself, but you also need to know that you've got a bit of security because you're going to make some daft mistakes. You, you're going to do some silly things, and that doesn't mean you know, you're a bad person or, you you know, you've, you're a major troublemaker or anything like that, but it just means that you need that support network that go, right, this happened, what have you learned from it? How are you going to get better because of this? Um, that's really what, yeah. you know, bringing up good teenagers should be about, that you're developing their character um, as they go along. Um, you know, they're not the finished article. The teenage brain is not an adult brain in waiting. Um, there's a lot of neurological pathways still to be firmed up. There's a lot of um, hormonal restructuring that's going on and just giving people the time and space to work out who they are as people when you're a teenager is really important and I'm exceptionally thankful that I had that and that's probably allowed me to pursue some of the things that I've been able to do, whether it be you know teaching, education, research. Um, I'm thankful for that. And, and it's allowed me to be very um, open-minded, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, an unbelievable way of looking at it and putting it. And I think you've mentioned that some of your role models and who they were. Mm. Do you realise that now, or did you realise that then? And if you realised it then, and I mean as you were a lot younger in those formative years, yeah. 
what did you realise? Because yep. I'm guessing you probably didn't go, that person's going to be really good for my sense of belonging, sense of connection. Yep. He's going to be really good yep. for my habits of mind and my adolescence. You know. So what was it that you, you, you saw in people yeah. that people listening can go, yeah. let's look for that? Yeah, I think I think some of it is almost on a superficial level. Like I remember, you know, looking at, you know, athletes that were a bit older than me, players, whatever it may be, and just thinking, just watching the way that they might warm up or, you know, what they eat before a game or, you know, what even just silly think that seems silly now, but what boots is he wearing and how does he do that and he always has a drink bottle. So those things at the time you just think, Oh yeah, he's a He's a he's a good sort of model, um, but also I think I gravitated towards people who were just friendly, open, didn't treat me with um, kind of kid gloves. You know, they 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 if there was a message to be shared, they shared it, and and if there was some you know not tough lessons to be learned, but some truths along the way, all the better for that. So I think. Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I don't think at the time I thought, wow, this guy is a real role model for me, and I'm gonna, you know, really pick his brain. I don't think you do that as a as a as a teenager or a child. But I think you want to feel safe. I think you want to feel that you are cared for, um, and I think you want to feel that you're free from sarcasm and ridicule. Um, and then you latch onto those people, and it probably takes, you know. 10, 15, 20 years when you really sit down and reflect on it to go, yeah, what he was doing when he was saying those things was this, or with the benefit of hindsight or experience now, yeah, he was really educating me in this way. Um, even things I had, you know, I had a part-time job with a guy, Anthony Patterson, who um, he again took me under his wing and he, he showed me what the world of work was like and what hard work meant and things like that at the time, you know, you didn't realize you were getting an education, um, but on reflection, the habits and systems that they set up were, were gold, really. So I'm, I'm so lucky to have that and be able to espouse that now and hopefully provide that for others um, in some small way. And I think that, that leads me really nicely into something that I want you to talk about is, is mentoring. So a role model, like you said, is someone that you can look at from afar and observe. And there's a lot of the times, lots of role models don't know that they are a role model. Um, yeah, I mean, agreed. in yeah, essence, absolutely. footballers are told you are a role model, so behave mm. like this. But from a person-to-person yeah. point of view, they won't know that little Billy who lives in New Zealand, yeah. Yeah. his role model is... Journal Omu or whatever yeah. that may be. So yeah. it's, re- it's really hard for them to understand. So if we yeah. separate the two, what are the differences between a role model and a mentor? And then yeah. from there we'll move into um, not, I guess, how we, we look at a mentor from a young age, but mm. you know, really break it down into to some of the things that you've spoken about um, in yeah. terms of mentoring and some of the research that you've done. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Happy to do that. So I think, yeah, you're right. I think, Role models are people that you you know you do look up to them and respect them, but you may never meet them, and and you only see often quite a sanitised version of what people want you to see, especially in today's you know media managed age. You never really know if those people you look up to from afar are the real deal. Yeah. Um, you like to think they are, and more often than not, they probably are, but you never really know, and you never really connect with them. 
um, what I feel about mentorship is it's a lot deeper. It's a lot more personal. Um, it's a lot more of a relationship where you are walking side by side with someone rather than, hey, look at me, look how I do it. It's actually a bit more reflective and a lot of questioning around, okay, this happened. Why do you think that? How do you think that's happened? What could you improve upon? Um, so that really sort of quite tightly bonded relationship is what I see mentoring. Um, and I think it is vital um, that teenagers can have mentors, uh, whether they are formally prescribed. You know, lots of schools have mentoring programs where they'll buddy people up or, or whether it's informal, semi-formal. Um, but the value in having someone to talk to when you need them um, is exceptionally important and can't be overstated, I think. I mean, we did a little bit of work, um, started a little bit of work in um, July last year um, around specifically around mentorship and around allowing a little bit more agency from the mentee to be in that relationship. Um, yeah. Which, which has been quite revealing. Um, so we did a little bit of action research uh, with a group. Um, and then, yeah, I, I started that in July in Montreal um, with a group called the International Boys School Coalition. And then it's a year-long piece of work, which I'm sort of coming towards the end of now. It, it wraps up soon. But we found a lot of things out from that. We found that, you know, athletes, players, students, whatever you want to call them, teenagers, they need some agency within that mentor relationship. And the big part of that is that the strength, the strength of the match, so the strength of the person you match the other person with directly correlates with the length of the match. So if you've got a strong match, and the strong match would be things like having things in common, yeah. uh, shared interests, shared goals, um, someone who's maybe walked in your shoes a little bit further than you have, um, they would things that would be strong indicators of a, of a match. Um, the stronger the match, who the longer that match, Andy. Who, who matches up? I mean, is it a yep. mentor yep. going in search of men mentorees? Is it? Yep. Is it? Yeah, who matches it up and, and how? Yeah, and I, yeah. I think it's a good question, um, and I think that's something we put a little bit of work into. That ideally, you know, what we're finding is that the 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 young person, if they've got some agency in dictating, this is what I'm looking for. Um, they feel like they're a little bit more invested. They feel like they've got a little bit more voice when things start, the mentoring process starts. Um, that would be a way of them taking a bit more ownership. So we did some work. We got some boys to kind of write a bit of a CV, write a bit of a job description for what they were looking for. Um, and then we used a pool of mentors um, to match those people up. Um, what we found too often um, was you know a call of oh, this this kid or this guy or whoever he needs a mentor let's find him someone and then he gets prescribed someone and really you know they're no more closely matched than anyone else it just so happens that you know the boys put his hand up to be mentored there's a pool of mentors somewhere either in an organization or a group or whatever and we just pair them off and that's fine and sometimes that works but you are leaving quite a lot to chance by doing it that way um, where we're at now is that we would much prefer a student 
or the athlete or the player, whatever you want to say, to take some ownership of that and say, look, I'm actually looking for this, this yeah. type of person or these types of habits. This is what I want to get out of the process. And then almost reverse matching them up, which sounds almost counterintuitive because it should be the mentor. You know, they know what the person needs. They've got the experience, etc., which is all true. But I think that experience can come out once the match has been made. And I, I think it's much more important that there's a voice and a bit of agency from the student um, to start that process. Um, that's what we found. Um, and like we say, the longer the longer the relationships, the longer ones have been the better matched ones. And we've really honed in on getting some sort of um, real structure around what they're looking for. That really works well for us. Um, but again, and this is something I probably should have reiterated again now. I said it at the start. I'm no expert on this. Um, I, I don't think I'm the ever think I'm the cleverest person in the room ever, no matter what room I'm in, even if it's in my own room in my own house. <laughs> um, but so yeah, it, it, this is more about starting those conversations. And yeah. the good thing is that the good thing is I or no one else has all the answers, and that's the really exciting part of this that you know learning from each other and being open-minded is one of the most important or two of the most important things i think you can have um because you build a lot of trust that way and you, and you share a lot of vulnerability and that really does bind people together um trust and sharing where you're weak and where you're vulnerable um is very much a strength i think yeah i just want to go a little bit more into that then so you've spoken about trying to identify a mentor or, mm. you know, both people trying to figure out who's right for who. Yeah. Can that person be a current friend, someone that, or, or if it's not, if it can't be a friend, why not? And is this yep. process something that you you need to review? So I've chosen someone to be my mentor six months down the line. Do I review it? Do I move, Has this mentor changed me for the better, which actually means mm. now that that mentor isn't the right mentor for me because yeah. he's moved me on to a place where I need the next mentor? Or yeah. yeah, so can they be a friend? And if not, why? And what's the review and the timeline? Yeah, I mean, I mean again, I mean, caveat, I don't have all the answers, but I think it's hard to be your mate who then becomes your mentor because I think there needs to be a little bit of distance between you um, because quite often your friends, and it's part of your sort of subconscious bias, they're your friend because they're your friend and they want to make you feel good and they want to tell you what you want to hear sometimes. So I think it's hard on both, you know, both friends or mates, whatever you want to call them, to mentor because normally they're around about the same age as you. Normally um, you have shared interests. You're on the same pathway at the same time. So I think it's very hard to ask, say, if you're, you know, 15, I don't think another 15-year-old has that level of experience to actually be a mentor. They might be a really much better friend, um, but I would be wary of, you know, formally assigning a mentor who is essentially very similar to you. Um, so that would be my first thought. Um, and, I mean, in part of the, the second part of your question, I think, was about who you look for. Was that correct? Just in terms of timing, so when when is yep. it when is it reviewed and does yep. that person then put is the idea then to always seek a, a better mentor? You know yep. that's a real yep. broad way of using the word better. But no, I, I know what you mean. I think they there needs to be a goal in mind that we're not just you know meeting once a week or once a fortnight for a friendly chat. 
um, what are we striving to achieve here? Um, and once that has or hasn't been achieved and you go through that process of reflection, yeah, I mean, obviously it might be time to, to reassess, reevaluate, and you might be moving in a different direction where someone has more experience. But generally what we found is the mentor is growing as well. So, you know, as they are getting to know you better, um, you know, they may be looking for other areas of research themselves or things that, you know, are useful to you to know. So there's no finite amount of time, I think, but it is more around goals and um, achievements that, yes, it might be time to move on, but I don't think you ever sort of lose that person as your mentor. I think you can always go back and, and different people. I mean, like you said before, I've probably had five or six key people and there's still five or six key people, but I might maybe lean on them a little bit differently now that I'm a bit older or, um, you know, I may be keen to get some knowledge from one that the other doesn't have. So I think you're just, again, open-minded, willing to admit, you know, where you're vulnerable, where you're weak, where you sort of need to improve upon and then finding those key people. Um, yeah, I think, I think you almost get as much out of it as being a mentor as you do being a mentee. Um, but, but yeah, I think the, I think the relationship needs to be formally set that this guy very much, or this person is very much a mentor of mine rather yeah. than this is just my mate who does a bit of mentoring. I think you need to see them differently. Um, yeah. and when I look, when I think about some of the people that I've, you know, who I consider to be mentors to me, I do, see them differently they are on a bit bit of a different pedestal if you want to call it that a platform that you know when I go to them or when we work together um, it's a different dynamic to when I catch up with my mates at the weekend or anything like that yeah no that, that's um that's these, these are just giving me um, more and more if you like opportunities to go a little bit not deeper but explore a little yeah, bit more on this because I'm really passionate about the role of a mentor and I can see really yep. really easily across the board how it, people get it wrong or yep. people make mistakes with it or mm. it's not effective so yep. there'd be people listening that would go well my son or daughter or mm. myself have got a mentor or I haven't or I'm yep. mentoring someone or I'm not yeah if they're not who plays the role in providing that person for their child. So I've got a 13-year-old boy. What I value and what my 13-year-old boy values are mm. different. What he yep. needs and what I want him to need are different. Yep. But equally, I don't want him just going to go and hold a sign up in the shopping center saying, can you approach me to help? So yeah, yeah, of course. How, does, how, do you, how do you find one? And, and who plays yep. the role in determining that? Yeah, great question. I mean, first of all, your teenage, your teenage son or daughter, they're going to find the answers from somewhere. Um, they're going to look for places to get answers. What you want to do as a parent, I suppose, um, and I've got a two-year-old, so but I do work with teenagers every day, so <laughs> I kind of get a bit of insight. Is you want to guide where they're going to for that advice, um, because teenagers do want to connect and belong to something, and it's easier to find sometimes as a teenager negative influences um, rather than by the time you're an adult, you're probably a lot more attuned to working what through what those negative influences may be. Um, so I suppose it's important that you are, as a parent, 
guiding the process um, and looking at mentorship. I mean, there's very formal programs that you can be involved in. There's probably some in Australia where they actively can provide mentors. But I think as a parent, you need to be looking at people who are a little bit more experienced than your child, uh, you know, still got some stories to share, etc. but where you can just approach them and go, you know, would you mind spending just half an hour with him? He's a little bit lost in this area. Um, mm. Or, you know, he's just really sort of gone off the rails at school. And people like to be asked. You know, people very rarely would go, oh, you know, I, I really, really don't want to help that young person. People don't yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, it's not in the nature. And if it, if it was in that person's nature, you would never ask them anyway because you would know that. Um, so in terms of um, people um, who you look towards, I think as a parent, I would hope you've just got that bit of gut instinct, that bit of parental intuition, um, but you can't do it for them. You can't give them the answers. Hey, what I would do right now is this. That's not what mentoring is. Mentoring is about showing a vision of the future and then plotting a course of how you want to get there. So, I mean, we would set some, for people who are getting into mentoring, we would we would ask questions around purpose um, in terms of, you know, what's the most important area of focus for you right now as a young person? You can get a lot of um, good stuff from them answering that question. And where do you think you should be, um, you know, spending your energy right now? Where's the most important place for you to put your energy? These are all questions that will elicit a response. And I don't think you can probably go into this straight away in session one. Um, you know, there's a real very much a getting to know you phase and some superficial stuff to work through. Um, asking about where do they feel they're talented in? Where does the talent lie? Um, how can they integrate that talent into their vision or their goals or their habits? Um, you know, the structures that are in place for them. Do they have habits? Do they have routine? What does it look like? You know, what are they thinking about integrity? Um, these are questions that teenagers are grappling with anyway. Um, these are things they're challenged with on a daily basis. It's quite, in some ways, it's a lot easier to be a teenager now because there's a lot more um, things to do and social media and, um, you know, we're not sending teenagers into the mine, you know, at 13 years old to work and then they're dying when they're 35. You know, it's, it's a great time to be a teenager in some ways, mm -hmm. but it's also more complex. You know, they're bombarded with messages from the media. They're bombarded with peer group things. It's quite important to, to look cool, but not too cool, you know, because you don't want to stand out too much, but you don't want to yeah. be, have no identity either. So there's a lot of things to navigate that, you know, if you were a teenager 100 years ago or 50 years ago, you had to some extent, um, but not to the constant 24-7 um, kind of Instagram life that a lot of teenagers live in now. Um, and then a lot of that comes, you know, you've really got to drill a bit deeper into talking about performance, you know. So what do they expect from themselves? What behaviors do they think deliver, you know, their best work and how do they harness that and how do they leverage off that? And then, you know, how do they bring energy to what they want to achieve and how do they help others bring energy um, to what they want to achieve? Because nobody wants to be 
I don't believe. Nobody says, right, I'm, I want, today I want to be really, really selfish and not help anyone. Um, but quite often they don't have the tools to practice selflessness and gratitude and those other things. So I think that's what a good mentor will be able to pull out of them um, because it is in there. I think it's inherent in everyone. I think you've got to believe in the goodness of, of young people. Um, if I didn't, I certainly wouldn't be in this job. You wouldn't be in yours. Mark wouldn't be in his. Um, but it's about, you know, walking side by side with them and just, or maybe half a step ahead of them and just pointing a few things out along the way around those critical areas of purpose, performance, you know, a bit of pizzazz and energy, um, those types of things, I think. Yeah, so you, you, you talked then about, you know, obviously a really good overview of or an insight into the, the mentoring and the do's and the mm. don'ts. You talked about some of the good role models that you had, people that guided you, yep. and some of your experience. So I'm guessing at some point you didn't decide, right, this is brilliant. I'm going to leave all of this behind in England, and I'm going to go to New Zealand. <laughs> so why, how did that transition happen? Um, and yep. what, what took you over there to New Zealand to, to then obviously get to where you've got now and then into the role that you've got? Yep. Yes. Yeah, so, um yeah, so growing up, I suppose, um, like I say, school was very important. I wanted to get good grades and I wanted to go to university and do those things. And, and I, I kind of knew pretty early on I wanted to coach and or teach, but primarily teach, which I think good teachers are good coaches and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I, I did that. I, I got my degree. I started teaching in a school, school actually that I went to as a student, which is really good for me. Um, and furthered my education. I did a master's degree um, around educational psychology um, and educational leadership. And then I was always in contact. I've mentioned a few times with John, uh, John Herdman, and I knew there were some opportunities in New Zealand. And I just went with an idea that it would be interesting and I'd be open-minded. And as long as I had enough money to buy a plane ticket home, if it all went south, then what's the worst that could happen? I, I think I probably have that philosophy with a, a lot of things. You know, let's work out what's the best thing that can happen here? What's the worst thing that can happen here? Mm. The reality is probably going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, hopefully it's somewhere near towards the good end. Um, and if things don't go well, I'll just come home and I'll just do something else and I'll just build again and try something again. I, I, I don't really see, you know, if it hadn't worked out for me in New Zealand and I'd failed, it wouldn't have made, I wouldn't have felt like a failure, I don't think. I would have just gone, hey, that's an experience that didn't work out for me, um, which I'd have those thoughts about lots of things, I suppose. But I primarily went because I just saw an opportunity. I fancied a new challenge. Um, I thought I would give it a year. That was 2012, I think. Um, and if I didn't like it, I'd, come back, recoup, got a great family, you know, got you know, great support around me back in England anyway. And, you know, my wife and I, we just, we would start again and do something differently. But thankfully so far, touch wood, I've just really, I've just really enjoyed it. You know, I've had an opportunity to, you know, I've, I've coached now, I've been, sorry, been part of a coaching staff at two World Cups um, with John and the under 20s women's team in Russia. And then with another really good friend of mine, Darren Baisley, in the 17s in New Zealand and again just great experiences things I've loved doing 
but always of the mindset that if things change or I want to pursue something else, hey, what's the worst that can happen? But for now, I love the school I'm in. You know, I love the job I do, and long may it continue. Um, absolutely. But I, I, like I said, just to reiterate, I just went because I thought I would enjoy it, and I thought even if I didn't enjoy it, at least I'd be coming home with a couple of good stories and some experience to share. That was primarily it. Just went with an open mind. Yeah, I think the key to any you know any sort of happiness through your job or or way with your work is to have as many of your passions under one roof. And yeah, it certainly absolutely. seems like you've got a lot of them, um, you know, at Westlake High Boys yeah. School. Um, if we zone in on that a little bit and, and the, the school that you're at now, can you give us, um, rather than a snapshot of, you know, the school and how you run the, the school and that sort of thing, how mm. what we spoke about is brought to life in your school? Because I'm guessing through your role, the, the school has allowed you to bring that passion into into the day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Can you give yeah. us any examples of you know where this this, this mentoring or or leadership has, has yeah. begun to take take form through your school and what journey that's on at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of my principal jobs in the school is around character building of character in our character education program. So we put a lot of time and deliberate intention into developing the character of our boys, um, as well as getting great academic results and representing us on the sports field and all those sorts of things. And, you know, we know that they're going to need good grades to, to achieve things. Yes, um, that's important, but really their character is what's going to stand them in good stead long after, you know, one boy's got two A stars and a B and the other one's got three Bs and a C. In that sense, the character piece it gives you a little bit more currency than the than the academic grades. The academic grades open doors for you, um, but we believe you carry the character through that door with you, and that's what people are going to remember about you. So we we try to bring that to life a little bit with our our model that we work through. So we look at character as a whole, and then we we've broken that down through a series of consultations with business leaders and old boys and parents and staff members and so really hone in on a few things which would be one obviously being character as a whole um, but then communication change readiness collaboration creative and critical thinking so they're kind of our we believe they're the things that boys need to develop and we need to help them develop so can they communicate well what does that actually mean in the modern age um, similarly with change readiness, you know, how adaptable are they? Are they able to change with circumstance? Are they able to change because the situation's changed? Um, are they adaptable in that respect? Collaboration is the work of the future is going to be in collaborative teams, whether that's global, whether that's in an office, you know, seldom now can anyone do all parts of their role without someone else helping them. So jobs are going to be so much more multifaceted that you're going to work with teams a lot more. Um, yeah. So that's the collaboration bit. And then really the creative and critical thinking is, you know, can they look at a problem and have a solution-focused mindset and actually interrogate what they're seeing so that they don't just take everything at face value? So. We, uh, in the process now of 
embedding that into curriculum a little bit, yeah, um, which will be important. But we also do that through, you know, we hold weekly assemblies where all two and a half thousand, two thousand three hundred boys are all in the same space, so we can share a lot of messages there. Um, but we really want it to be an inherent part of our culture. We're probably about three years in, but we want this to to be around for the next hundred years. Something we're always refining and developing. Um, because lots of things are going to change. You know, technology is changing a lot of things. Um, ways of working are changing. But I would like to think a good character that is going to stand the test of time. And that is what the best sports teams, the best schools, the best academies, the best music groups, I think that is what people are getting out of it, that they are shaping and defining your character in a positive way um, rather than just doing something to win a trophy or finish top of the league or whatever because the rea- the reality of that is some of it's just yeah big deal so what um, you got the most trophies you scored the most goals what does it actually mean you know when you become a father uh, what does it actually mean when you have to lead a team of people in your work what does it actually mean whereas I would like to think being a good character does actually mean something and it does actually allow you to be the best you can be, I suppose. Yeah, and I think what you said there about the school living it through assemblies and about the school coming together to create this as um, part of your culture is something that a previous guest, Heather Garriott, who's a coach for the, in the W League last year with Canberra, played 130 times for the Matildas and gave us a really good insight into some of the things that you've said around setting team culture and who you involve in that process, but then also how that's uh, the continuation of that. So rather than just printing it on some some nice posters around the school and kind of forgetting about it, and lots of clubs, um, you know, in the UK have got uh, phrases and Mm, things that they live by. A lot of it's in Latin and it's not even in English, and I would be very surprised if some of the under-9s even know what it says, (laughs) let alone what it means to the club. So how will you bring those to life day to day is it every everything honed in on that is it organic or yeah how, what would it what would it how would those things come to life for one of your pupils yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to think we'll get to a point where I, I really think the only um true measure of someone's character is born out through behavior um you know the behaviors that they display every day, day in, day out, when people are watching, when people are not watching, um, and how they live. So yeah, I mean you can have you can have some beautiful inspirational quotes on walls and, and sometimes that is important and I'm not saying we don't do that. Yeah. we you know it is important to to put things front and center of people's thinking and, and it reminds them of you know expectations and things like that. Um, but I think the true asset test is are the behaviors of the students, the athletes, the players, are they aligned with what you said you were going to do, what your vision is? Um, and the same for your coaches. You know, if it's, if you have a, a real, you know, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords, but if respect is one of your, you know, what you want to be one of your cultural norms, but then that coach is, you know, behaving like a lunatic on the sideline, then, you know, he's not aligning his behavior to the core role. And, and then the poster may as well be ripped off the wall and put in the bin because it actually has got no value, it's got no worth. Um, 
So I think in answer to your question, I think aligning behaviours to or anchoring those behaviours to your character and to your vision um, is really, really important. And that is the true measure of where we want this to head. Um, I mean, I was really, when I was in Perth with Mark probably five years ago, you know, every boy, every girl, every coach shook hands with each other before the session start. They shook hands with each other when the session finished. Um, that was a clear demonstration to me of respect, humility, um, and, and a way of working that wasn't contrived. It wasn't just done for effect. It had meaning and it had value. Um, so there's a behavior that I probably, hopefully it still goes on now. I assume it does, but it actually meant something. Um, yeah. And they didn't have to put that on the wall. The kids felt it. The coaches felt it. Um, that's the true test, I think. And, and, and really for those clubs and those academies and those places that's doing that, good on them because you mm. can only really judge it from a behavior perspective, not, oh, well, he said this, so he did that. Uh, no, nah. it's got to be behavior-based. And I would like to think, moving forward, um, if you got to know one of our boys who didn't have his uniform on and you knew a bit about our school, you would go, yep, yeah, he's one of ours, even if it's he left school 20, 25 years later or something like that. Same with what Mark wants at PFT, you know, that these boys yeah. that go through our program, these girls that go through our program, they look and act and think and feel like a PFT player, um, not just because they're a good technical yeah. player that can do 50 keepy-ups or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, obviously we talk a lot about the complete player and all the different mm. arms to, to their learning and their development. Um, on what you, you said there, a lot of groups, uh, whether it's teams, sports teams or various different teams, will have these beliefs and you know you've you've come up with these points around character yeah is is the measure of how well the group polices itself without teachers being present um and have you seen that happen and that occur and, and when i say police is that a case of avoiding problems mm. um that they've avoided themselves without your intervention or is it actually there to promote success so that people can turn around to you and say, we did this, we didn't need to come to you because we believe in the values and from that, this has happened. Yeah, yeah uh, great question. I think, um, I think again, you know, without sitting on the fence too much, I think you need a little bit of both. You know, young people aren't going to get it right all of the time and they need some guidance. So if you're working across a continuum, you know, some are learning some of your habits and values, some are doing them um, and they've, you know, they've learned it and now they're doing it, but that's a personal thing and some are a little bit further on the spectrum and they're leading it. So you're really looking across that learn, do, lead model and recognizing that, you know, your, your kids are going to be all at different stages on that. Um, and they might be leading in one way with, their, for example, their collaborative approach. They might be really a leader in that, but they, may, they might still be learning, you know, some of the creative thinking side of it. So it's really been adaptable and mindful that everyone's sort of moving, shifting across those three um, those three checkpoints. They're either learning, they're doing, or they're leading. And then it's up to adults, you know, the grown-ups, to work out, well, 
do I need to intervene there? Or can I just step back and will someone emerge from the group? Um, Or do I really, no, actually, this is critical. I need to get in there. This is a really positive, teachable moment. Um, Or there's a crisis about to unfold here. I can't not roll my sleeves up here. Um, Or can I step back? And I think it's it's very much, you're very much relying on the experience and wisdom of the grown-ups, of your coaches, um, of your teachers, to make that call. Um, and then reflecting on, well, it may have been the right call, it may not have. How do we get it you know, better for next time sort of thing? So um, it is tempting you know, for coaches to just every time jump in, dive in, you know, fix the problem. But sometimes it's not a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a really positive problem. You can't have a lot of positive problems that young people want to work out for themselves. Um, and, you know, that can be a, an uncomfortable experience for them sometimes. We call that, you know, going into the pit sometimes. And um, I really, again, you know, had some quality people who work with me on this. Um, you know, when there's a new episode of learning, you have to really put yourself in a place of discomfort and you need to really leave your ego at the door and say, look, I'm struggling here. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm learning something new. It's frustrating. um, It can be quite annoying. Um, We call that the pit, you know, when you jump into the pit of learning and sometimes you can't see the way out. Um, But what we would say around that is that you don't need to jump in the pit as a coach and, and drag them out. You just need to make sure that you're laying the right ropes that they can pull themselves up on or the right ladders um, so that they can actually work it out for themselves, come out of that pit and actually leave it at a higher level than, than they entered it. Um, that's, that's, learn, that's real learning. But in that pit of learning, it's messy, it's noisy, it's uncomfortable, it's frustrating. It's, uh, you think you've got it. Yeah. And then you don't, and then yeah. it's all of those things. Um, your job in that respect, as a as a coach or a, or a teacher, I suppose, is to actually just take some of that emotion out of it. You know, um, really sort of see it for what it is, and allow them to experience it without that emotion. Um, sorry, without too much emotion. You need some emotion, I suppose, but without letting that cortisol, which is a stress hormone, really disrupt you know, the joy of learning, I suppose, um, because it can. Cortisol is a chemical, a hormone that really puts you in survival mode. It puts you in that fight-or-flight mode, which is very important. You know, it's, it's helped us survive as a species for a long, long time. Yeah, um, certainly now. But, but it can have the opposite effect when you don't need to survive. You need to actually learn something and you need to devote the time and the concentration and the effort to something. Um, that's when you so there's you know there's there's lots of ways that coaches can can sort of preempt you know that crisis mode or that survival mode hitting and most of it really comes down to safe environment letting those kids know they feel you know they can make a mistake they're not going to be judged um, and they're going to be guided I suppose they're the main things and that's what's really important um, because we are living in a world now, um, you know, it is volatile at times, it's uncertain, it's complex, it's ambiguous. Um, that's the VUC, the VUC, a world that a lot of people, you know, espouse now. And, and the more we can help young people navigate that, um, the better we will all be for that.
Yeah, I think um, you mentioned about obviously the pit and some really good points there around letting it not feel too safe, mm. but also recognizing that that person's going to end up back in that pit at some point for something different, yep. hopefully something yep. different, or hopefully not yep. exactly the same. Yeah, um, and it's managing that expectation and mm. also realizing the perspective of that. So if you look at that um, in an actual sense, someone's in the pit looking up or they'll feel that people are there looking down. Yeah. And it's how they feel in that. Are they, do they want to put a hand out or, or just pride kick in in that survival yep. mode that they don't want yep. help or that this isn't a problem? And, and then that, that obviously has issues as well, um, yep. which we see all the time in a coaching mm. point of view. When do I jump in? Do I not jump in? Mm. Uh, and I've probably gone a little bit too far the other way in not jumping in because we're going to let it play out, we're going to let it play out, but it's, there's an artwork definitely to knowing yep. when to intervene, yep. but how to intervene and who to, inter- and who to bring into that intervention and how long you intervene and do you fully solve the problem before you get it and do you, do you maybe just leave them in the pit but make them think that they're out? It's, it's, a, it's a really complex thing, but if you really yeah. care fundamentally about solving the problem or teaching the problem, yeah. I think your intentions will all, if your intentions are always right, you'll come to the the right point in the end. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important as well to note that, you know, coaches and you know, you want you you want your players to be and parents I suppose as well, you want to be putting your sons and daughters in positions where they are out of their comfort zone. And that's really important. But then if you're going to be true to yourself, you've got to do that yourself as well. So, you know, when was the last time, you know, the coach of whatever club, he really put himself or herself in an uncomfortable situation? We can sometimes get, as adults, you know, just, you know, on that out of your comfort zone stuff. That's for the kids, you know. But actually, it's it's twofold, I suppose. If you take something on that's uncomfortable for you and you learn something new or whatever, one, it's good for you because you get to recognize where your um, emotion goes, where your energy goes, etc. But also it makes you realize what teenagers and young people experience sort of every day. And it makes you a lot more relatable. Um, and, and that can be, you know, go and learn something new, go and do a new course, always kind of pushing a little bit further. Um, because that's how you make some of your players feel daily and you can become a little bit blase about it, I think. So you've got to be true to yourself and go, well, I'm asking these kids to get out of their comfort zone sort of 10 times a week, but I haven't been out of my comfort zone for 10 years. Um, You know, that's not probably going to buy you any credibility with um, the people you're working with, I suppose. So it's seeking those opportunities as, as an adult to try and, really get out your comfort zone and get a sense of what it feels like to be struggling again. Um, but you've got to be vulnerable and open-minded to do that. Um, but I think the best coaches definitely are. They're always pushing to something new. Yeah, well, and Andy, this conversation, and I'm, I'm conscious of um, what I promised, will we try and keep short? But it's been absolutely <laughs> fascinating. That's mate. probably my it's, fault. Sorry about no, that. No, no, no. One, no one, absolutely no fault. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I've run out of paper or run out of room on my scribbles. Um, so I'm now writing on the opposite side in the other <laughs> corner, um, which is excellent. So before we do bring it to an end, 
Um, we did mention in the week when we spoke about the pit, which we've talked about, and the campfire. And these are mm. two examples um, of that think people can practice or people can be aware of. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about the campfire um, and, and give us maybe some examples of where you personally have seen this occur. Yeah, of course, yeah. So when I was over in Perth, probably, like I said, five years ago now, I presented on a little bit of um, something, just anecdotal stuff really around. I think there's, you know, to keep in your mind as a coach, there's three sort of environments you need to build um, into your um, pedagogy or whatever it is, your, your coaching philosophy that you need to keep in mind. And I called it the camp, uh, the campfire, the cave, and the watering hole. Um, really more as a storytelling piece, but I think I looked, I was thinking about what happens in a, when you're around the campfire. You sort of, you sing songs, you tell stories, um, you have a, quite a lot of fun. Um, you need to have that element in your coaching, I think. You need to have that campfire experience in every session. Um, so that was one sort of environment to build. Um, the other was what I called the cave. Um, so you know, caves are places you go into to reflect, um, and they're quite um, isolating. Um, so that was just about building something into your coaching whereby you're providing those um, reflective opportunities um, where your players can actually think about what they've done. So they're not working on autopilot. They're sort of having that cave experience of it's a bit dark, you know, it's a bit but I'm going to work my way through this um, almost um, not in a negative way about being isolated. I mean that in a positive way, um, really reflecting on what's been going on. And then the third one was what I call the watering hole. And, I, and that was around, you know, when that's where you go to get nourished. Animals go to the watering hole to, to feed and to drink and to get some sustenance. Um, so you need to have that experience. I'm, I'm talking... <laughs> Hopefully you've got these are metaphorical places I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But can you build in, you know, that campfire experience to all of your sessions? Is there a bit of a cave, a bit of a reflective opportunity? And then are you providing that watering hole where, you know, they can go and drink, you know, the good stuff and really get nourished properly? Um, and that's through you being, you know, a good coach, a good educator. Um, so that was something I think hopefully, you know, Mark, you know, I, I, well, I know he, he took it on a little bit. He talks to players about it, but players and coaches and parents, I suppose, you know, you can, you you can have, you know, only one of those things is probably a bad thing. Um, you've got to have all three working in tandem, I suppose, working as a as a triangle, I suppose, um, and then moving you kind of your players around those three areas that they're always, you know, they're feeling that it's fun and interesting and it's spunky and it's collegial and it's good fun around that campfire and they're, they're enjoying it. Then there's also a place where, you know, you can go and reflect and really ref, refine what you're doing and your habits of mind. But then they always know they can go to that, have that watering hole experience and really get some good food, some good nourishment um, and drink some good stuff that's really benefiting them. So I think it was just a way of having three areas in your mind that you could you could build into planning sessions so that all of those boxes are ticked off. And when yeah. you're talking about the complete player, which which I know PFT do a lot about, hopefully that supplements that side of it. Um, that it's it's not all about what goes on between the you know between the white lines of the grass. Um, that's a really really small part of 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 what it is. 
and the reality is not many of them are going to make a living out of the game um but they are going to be good people if good coaches do good things with them and you know when they become fathers when they become mums you know when they become students when they become teachers when they become plumbers and electricians or whatever it may be i don't care i think you'll draw on those habits that have been you know kind of fostered throughout your time um and i know that in western australia that's happening with mark and barry a lot and um there's something special going on there so that's why i'll always i always want to stay connected to what they're doing because i think they're really doing it better than anyone else at the moment on that side of the world no, I mean, for some for something for you to speak on what you've spoke on for, uh, and in in the detail that you have, and given the examples that you've had, this is the perfect time for people to listen to these podcasts and be in the cave, be reflecting. There's probably yeah. not an awful lot of campfires at the minute, um, but being oh, I don't know, Jack. I don't know. I think you've got to look for those silver linings. I think you'll find yeah. them if you look. If you look. If you're open-minded and you look, um, you know, connect with people, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to connect. Um, I think all three can work at the moment and you've just got to maybe put yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit more to find them because they may have been taken away from you. But yeah. um, if you're really sort of wanting to grow and develop, um, you'll find them because it is about that sort of peak performance type of stuff. And um, yeah, I, think yeah, you yeah. Can find it. I really think you can find it. And I hope people really can um i know they can i really know they can yeah no and i think that is a good point something to say sort of in response to to me probably looking at it and saying well you can't go into your group sessions you can't have that interaction and then just accepting so that that's a really good point but in terms of like like you say reflecting and adding value um to to your own learning and, and now's a really good time for people to be selfish and say well what 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 can i do to get better I'm probably not yeah. in these big group environments. Um, if I'm yeah. part of a team, I'm now not in the team because there isn't a team and there isn't a game. Yeah. So what do I need to do for me? And then it's probably a time that you won't, well, let's hope we don't get back. But um, people can take anything from this. It's, it's that this, this type of learning, this type of connection needs to then be added once everything returns back to normal. Absolutely. And then yeah, absolutely. the situation that we're in is, is ahead of, way ahead of the game. Um, yeah. We've always probably thought we don't need to do that because we're doing this, and we don't need to do this because we can we can go and have our session once a week. And as long yep. as I see the coach for an hour, that's fine. I don't need to speak to him or hear from him or yep. listen to him or watch him. So, yep. if anything, it's been a great chance for us to see, see how, how much we weren't doing before. Um, Absolutely, and I think um, to do more. Yeah, yeah and, and if you're open-minded, you know things are going to go back to normal if you want to call it normal. But you've got to work got to work out what bits of normal weren't working for you you know that was the old normal maybe there's a new normal now i don't know like i said i'm no expert i'm I'm far from the brightest mind in the room on this one but you know what parts weren't working and is this a chance to change them um so before you go back to normal um work out you know what bits of normal weren't good um that's about being open-minded and willing to learn and been aspirational and, and wanting some success, I suppose. No, Andy, thanks thanks so much for your time. Um, and I would like pleasure, to say an absolute that pleasure. Um, not, not just you, but all the guests that we've had on have spent an awful lot of time, their time, um, and in, in lots of circumstances, a lot of money and travel and research 
into giving us the answers and the, the you know the insights that they've given us and um you know that's all done you know completely you know for free you've volunteered all your time and all your information to us and yeah. that's something that we're really really passionate about with with our learning and with our teaching is not not having a, a mindset where people can't copy and where people can't yep. learn it's just being an open book so we really thank you for that um and we look we, we're sure we'll connect again soon absolutely um, Jack. and there's loads more we can touch on and, and keep this yep. keep this running through yeah brilliant i mean I, I certainly um i do feel like i owe mark a bit of a debt of gratitude and i'll always keep connected with you guys so that's really good and like i said i'm no expert on any of this but i do know that you know sometimes when you give a bit of knowledge you you get it back tenfold so um, I'm gonna. I'll get a lot from this, and and hopefully, if people want to get in touch, you can maybe post up my details, and and if people want to connect with me, then absolutely. So it's an absolute pleasure. Um, it's a great organisation that you know yourself and Barry and Mark have got going on, and it's it's a it's a real special thing to be involved in it in a small way, and hopefully, I'll be able to do that in person over in Perth um, sometime soon. Definitely will. So a huge thank you to Andrew there, and I'm sure that we'll speak again with him soon. Um, some of my notes that I've taken on that were um, excellent and something that I can look at and reflect on a little bit more, especially at the end there talking about uh, the campfire, um, you know, and how that looks in your sessions, the cave and areas to reflect um, and, and sort of isolated moments within your own learning and the watering hole where you get your, your nourishment and your, your nutrition and your sustenance of, of your coaching or your, your teaching. Um, it was really fascinating to see what makes boys tick, um, especially, and his involvement with the school and some of his projects that he's taking his research into. So a fascinating, yeah, fascinating conversation um, and really enjoyed listening to him talk about his critical thinking, um, ways of, you know, not necessarily avoiding problems, but looking to promote success. Um, he talked about the pit and yeah, an, an excellent um, conversation. So thank you very much. Um, we'll give you his details so that you can contact him should you need to. It's A-M-C-B-R-I-D-E. So a mcbride at westlake.school.nz or follow at Westlake podcast on Instagram, which this will be shared to. So thanks again, guys. And until the next one, goodbye.